Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Degar-Johnson. It is Tuesday, which means it is Draft Deep Dives Day. We are back again after a hiatus last week due to Tyler having something I've heard of in theory called a social life. Some, it's a strange concept to me, but something that apparently Tyler has. But we are now back in the saddle for this week. Tyler, how are you doing today? Nick, I'm good. Having friends is the worst. They, they they drag you to different states and make you go to their weddings, which is just kind of rude and selfish. But alas, we're back. Um, I'm I'm excited to to cover the guys we're we're going to cover today. Um, they they're two guys who I'm I'm pretty high on, so it, it should be a good time. Yeah, a couple prospects that we both are quite high on for today's discussion, and we're going to start off today by talking about your most recent Friday screener piece subject. Mark Williams and his pick and roll defense. And we talked about Mark Williams in passing in the Ismail Kamagate section of this podcast a few weeks back. So check that episode out if you haven't. But today we're going to be focusing on Mark Williams' defense in particular, and obviously his pick and roll defense in particular, because that's what you wrote about for the piece. But certainly Mark Williams is someone who will be in the discussion for a first round pick. And I think that we both very much buy into his defense, and that's going to be the driver for him going that high, if he doesn't end up going that high on draft night. But I'll let you break it down since you are the subject matter expert here. What are your thoughts on Mark Williams' pick and roll defense and what we've seen from him so far this season at Duke? It's it's just constantly controlling what the opponent does and the way that his and I, I feel like so frequently we simplify defense and rim protection to block shots. And that's obviously a big part of it. But everything Mark Williams does up to that point, I think, is so impressive and one of the most NBA ready skill sets that we've seen from any center in the country really so far. Um, just the the way he moves his feet, his ability to flip his hips. He never crosses his feet. It's always sliding them. He's always unbalanced. And that really allows him to react appropriately and use that absurd wingspan that he has to really deter and turn away opponent shots where so frequently we see guys or we see big men who get beat on a drive because they're they're at the level or they, they try and keep up with a guard coming off a screen and they get beat and they panic and they flip their hips and turn to chase. And then the guard just crosses back over or stops on a dime and pulls up for an easy 15 footer. That rarely ever happens with Williams because he's so fundamentally sound with his footwork and so confident and comfortable with his length and athleticism that even if that ball handler gets a step on him, he knows that if he just kind of keeps his footwork and his balance and his momentum continuing with the ball handler, that he can then use his length to recover and either turn away or full on block the shot. Um, and a lot of the time, ball handlers are so intimidated, I guess is the best word for it, by Williams and his drop coverage that they see him pick up their dribble and pass out or just dribble out entirely and reset the offense. So just the consistency and the impactfulness of his pick and roll defense on a possession by possession basis is just so impressive. And it's one of the more NBA ready skill sets. I think that, um, you know, that has been displayed by the, by the big men in this draft class. 
So you mentioned the shot blocking, and I think that's really interesting to talk about in tandem with the discussion of deterrence, where if you block a shot, there's a 0% chance of it going in, right? That's kind of the point of a block shot. But Mm -hmm. if the opponent never takes the shot at all, right, then that's, you know, also not a shot that has any particular chance of going in. And, you know, when you talk about Mark Williams and his sort of deterrence ability, you know, if opponents are taking a lot more shots as mid-range jumpers or contested three-pointers because they don't even bother to challenge him when they see Mark Williams at the rim, you know, that's a huge part of the defensive value that he provides is just the most efficient shot other than a free throw is a bucket right around the basket. And if you're not taking those attempts because there's a dude with a 7-7 wingspan standing right in front of the basket... That's a huge win for your defense without him even having to utilize his recovery skills. Yeah, and I, I think such a big factor in that being that impressive rim deter, I, I think we see a lot of this in Chet Holmgren's game too, mm-hmm. is that sense of verticality and not chasing blocks, knowing when and where to swipe down, how to use and how to fully utilize his strength and his athleticism and length to stay vertical and just make sure that that shot doesn't get off or, you know, really dilute the chance of it going in. And I, the, the, the block numbers are sexy. The, the block highlights are what's fun to watch. It's not super entertaining to watch a guy dribble into the paint and circle out and restart the offense. But the effect of it is essentially the same as blocking a shot into the fourth row. And the fact that Williams does this on such a consistent basis, he's just so controlled and it's a really mature approach to rim protection that I I feel like we don't always get from college players. So something that you mentioned in the piece that I think relates to that in his sort of maturity and understanding of the game is you bring up a couple times where he does get beat, but he doesn't panic. And that's Mm -hmm. something that you see from a lot of big men who are still sort of figuring out the pick and roll defense is, especially if they're shot blocker types, they miss the opportunity to pin the shot off the backboard. And all of a sudden they don't know what to do with themselves on the play. But with Williams, you know, every once in a while he does get beaten by a step because he's not as fast as the fastest six foot point guards. Right. Which is, kind of to be expected other than Willie Colley Stein, there aren't really any seven footers who can legitimately run with guards, but his ability to recover in those situations, I think is a huge part of his pick and roll defense as well, because even when he does get beat, he has the ability to get back into a play in a way that a lot of big men, his age don't. And and that's where I think the, the, the footwork component of his pick and roll defense really comes into play because for anyone playing the NBA deep dives <laughs> drinking game, Tyler just said John, footwork. <laughs> no, but it, it's so, yeah, he's just always on balance. And when, by, by, by not panicking and flipping his hips and, you know, getting them parallel to the baseline, he's able to do so many different things. And then that allow him to either just chase the ball handler all the way to the rim or react appropriately to any step backs they try to pull off because it once he turns his hips like i like i said earlier that that 10 15 foot step back is a legitimate weapon that big men can't react to as quickly but williams's base his footwork they're always on balance they're always consistent they're always sliding and taking him where he needs to go without taking him out of the play if the ball handler has an appropriate counter. I, you know, when we juxtapose that to like Jalen Duran, 
it's night and day where Durin is this athletic monster who who has always thrived on this obscene athleticism that no one else can match. And the majority of the time, that's been good enough. But we've seen it this year where Duran will get beat. I think he's a little heavy, heavier footed than Williams in the open floor. Um, but once once Duran gets beat, he's immediately flipping his hips. And then that that little mid-range step back, he can't do much with it, unlike Williams, who can appropriately react which I've, to whatever the ball handler's decision is. I'm really glad you brought up Duran because I think he's a very interesting player to sort of have in this comparison. Now, I will fully admit that I'm higher on Duran just because his athleticism just gives him a higher ceiling than sure. pretty much anyone, honestly, in this class. I mean, not not literally anyone, but you know, he's up there in terms of the highest potential ceilings in this class. But we also talk about how relatively easy it is to find athletic seven-footers at the NBA level, and so we have often and will probably continue to not probably will continue to debate on this podcast, the value of drafting those guys particularly highly, but with Williams, I mean, it's not just that he has the seven, seven wingspan. It's that he utilizes all of his tools. He still has room to grow, especially as a potential switch guy. I don't think he's going to be doing much switching at the NBA level, but you know, he could stand, I guess, to be a little more fleet of foot, but Really, the thing with Williams is he's so developed at the most important skill for someone of his size and position. You know, he is someone who projects as a clear plus defender in the pick and roll sooner rather than later. And with Duran and some of these other athletic centers that we've talked about over the years, you have to sort of project and imagine what they're going to become on the defensive end if they're going to hit their ceiling. Whereas with Williams, you don't have to project that much because he's showing on a nightly basis that he's almost all the way there. I, I'm really glad that you mentioned the switching. Um, not because I think Williams will do it, because I, I don't think he can or will or should. I think the hit. should is the key word there. <laughs> but his his footwork and motor and just um, fundamental soundness allow him to do more than just play drop coverage in the pick and roll, where he, he can play at the level, he can hard hedge, he can do different things where you different defensive schemes you know they can use Williams and throw different looks at the opposing offense instead of just purely drop coverage all the time because he he continues to show that he's more than capable of hedging and then recovering to his guy because he has that motor that footwork that length um that is just really disruptive so even though I, I don't expect him to ever really switch um he has that ability to still show and be kind of momentarily disruptive on the perimeter where I'm a little more hesitant on Duran ever really doing that because I I think it's a lot easier for quicker guards to turn the corner on him and then kind of get him off balance and manipulate his momentum in different ways because I I just think he's heavier footed despite being a much better athlete than Williams. I, I think Duran's just a little heavier footed in that aspect, but uh, you know that that's where the the youth and inexperience and situation can factor in as well. So it'll be I'm not saying ruling it out for Duran, but currently, um, I, I think Williams's overall versatility and what he can do and show and how he can be used in pick and roll defense is far superior. You mentioned the hedging for Williams, and I think that's important to circle back to. I mean, 
the footwork stuff that you mentioned because you love to talk about footwork, I think is key on this point just because it's easier to project him being able to be effective in a hedge, in a hard hedge, because you expect him to be able to get to the places where he needs to be. And if he doesn't get there on time, you have shown in the piece that he's much better at recovery than you might expect from someone of his sort of size and potential pedigree. Yeah. And he just kind of goes with the easy route where even though it might, his instincts might tell him to turn back over his right shoulder and chase where the ball is going. He just flips back over his left shoulder and, takes it where he's not really off balancing himself just it goes back to how he moves his feet and contains the ball handler and just his he has such an impressive sense of balance and all of that allows him to recover and you know react to the ball handler and his man and it's just he's never out of position and well he's not never out of position because i highlighted a instance when he was but he's never off balance i don't think there's anyone who's literally never out of position (laughs) right i mean fair but the the way that you know elite ball handlers really abuse big men by manipulating their momentum i think that's going to be a lot more difficult and a lot rarer to see with williams So what do you think of his defensive projection slash upside at the NBA level? Because I think that there's a very clear path for him to be like a top 10 defensive center, but I'm not sure Mm -hmm. about if he has a chance to be more than that, be someone who stiffs all defensive teams, but someone who is pretty reliably a top 10 defensive center in the NBA, unlike sort of the replacement level seven footers that we tend to talk about that's a pretty valuable piece and someone who definitely should be considered towards the back end of the first round. I guess my question is just, do you think there's more there than, you know, top third of the center crop defensively? Maybe a a little higher at his absolute peak, but I I think that's generally the right range because I I don't think he's going to be one of these game wrecking defensive centers, but I think he's going to be a super reliable and consistent kind of backbone for an NBA defense. Um, You know, I I think a lot of it will come into what are the wing defenders on this team like and how do, you know, how how effective are they at the point of attack? But overall, I I think his just general consistency and commitment to fundamentals and ability to show various looks in the pick and roll and then also be pretty effective as a weak side guy. um, I think all of that, at worst, um, it's probably top, at least top half to top third in of the league in uh, defensive centers. Yeah, that's sort of where I come down on it as well, where at the worst, I really don't think he's going to be in the bottom half of defensive centers. Quite yeah. frankly, if he is in the bottom half of defensive centers, I doubt he is a starter for very long. Yeah. No. But I mean, I think that just given his understanding of the game and his footwork i think it's hard to project him being bad as a pick and roll defender and rookies are very rarely good on the defensive end and rookie big men in particular tend to struggle to get adjusted to the league but i think that williams is going to have a lot quicker of an adjustment than most and sort of to circle back to duran i think that the chance that duran is a top half of the league center is in terms of defense, at least, is much lower than Williams. But 
if we're talking all defensive teams, I think that maybe Duran has like a 1% chance and Williams is like a 0.5% chance. Like it's the absolute, absolute ceiling outcome for both of them would be an all defensive team player. And I think Duran is more likely to get there just because I think he's a better athlete. And I think a lot of the heavy footedness that he shows is at least as much due to hesitation as actual heavy footedness. Maybe I'm just buying in a bit too much to Duran being too optimistic about him slash being too pessimistic about what the situation is in Memphis, but maybe the ceiling outcome for Duran is higher, but I think that the average outcome of Mark Williams is going to be average, like average defensive centers, maybe even on the lower end for him. But certainly I believe that he will be in the top half of defensive centers sooner rather than later, whereas Duran would have a lot of work to do to get there, but maybe the absolute ceiling outcome is more likely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's why the whole, you know, the ceiling floor, what percentile outcome, uh, you know, conversation comes into play. And I, I definitely agree that if everything goes right for Duran, I, I wouldn't be shocked if all NBA defensive team is in his future because that athleticism, the length, the the flashy playmaking, that gets a lot more attention than, you know, Williams what what Williams does, which I think is more kind of Jakob Pertle-esque, um, which Pertle has gotten a lot more love these last couple of years, but it's been a slow burn and people are, you know, hesitant to come around and actually admit that he's one of the best defensive centers in, in the league. And I would still be shocked if he ever makes an all-NBA defensive team. But that that's kind of the the the, the outcomes I... I guess I see for them. Whereas I, I fully expect Williams to be at least a good defensive center, regardless of where he goes. Whereas I think situation and where and landing spot for Duran are going to be absolutely crucial for how, or for what type of player he becomes. I'm very happy that you brought up Jakob Pertle because way back in my hashtag basketball archives, I have a deep dive on Pertle where I, praise his defense before the general public came around on that. So I, I feel real good about you bringing that up. Makes me, makes me feel better about things. And just a little bit of a delayed plug. Just a bit, just a bit, you know, like I think three years ago at this point. So still timely. (laughs) There we go. Something that is slightly more timely though, is the article that I most recently wrote over at no ceilings on Iverson Molinar, who is someone who. I've had hovering around the second round most of this draft season. I have just recently, so not on the most recent No Ceilings big board, but on my personal big board that I keep elsewhere in a private location uh, offshore in, no. Uh, but, But I have moved Molinar into the first round on my big board. Part of that is because this draft class is very bereft of potential lead guards. And part of that is because after having done a film deep dive on Molinar, I think that the positives that he's shown this year are positives that will translate. And the biggest negatives of his game, I think, are far more due to sample size issues than they are to him actually not being a good three-point shooter or not being a good defender. And if you look at his numbers from the year before... Those three-point shooting numbers, both his own three-point shooting numbers and his three-point defense look a whole lot better, and that makes the package as a whole look much better. So I think that Molinar is much closer to a 35-ish three-point shooter than the 
sub 30% that he's shown this year. And when you add that to the rest of his package, I think there is a very good chance that he ends up being one of the better guards in this class. So I know that you're high on Molinar, maybe not as high on him as I am at this point, but you know, talk me down a bit. What are your thoughts on Molinar? Have I gone overboard in my praise of him or do you think there's something there? No, not at all. Um, so I'm, depending on how you classify Dyson Daniels, I have Molinar currently as the fourth point guard on my board behind Ty Ty, Dyson Daniels, and Taryn Armstrong. Um, just, but I have him at 32 and Armstrong at 31, and I kind of seem to flip flop those two almost on, on a daily basis. I saw him, he's right there as like a fringe first round guy for me. And I think he's right in that conversation with him and kind of Alondis Williams of these guys who could really emerge and take, take hold of like who is the second best point guard out of this class or who's going to be the second highest drafted point guard from this class. Um, I definitely think he's there and the, the, the scoring versatility that he's shown, I think has been really impressive. The outside shooting drop off this year is a little weird. It in the games I've seen, uh, it's just like eight or so. Um, he kind of has like this weird hitch at the top of his shot from outside that isn't always there in the mid range. I don't know if that's just a strength thing or some weird tick that he picked up, but Every year before now, his outside shooting was really impressive, or at least consistent and reliable. And then on top of that, I think his on-ball defensive footwork has been really good. Sorry to go back to the footwork well again, take another shot. But, you know, for, for a point of attack defender, he's not the most overwhelming athlete or most physical or strongest guy, but his ability to move his feet and keep up with the ball handler, the opposing ball handler, on a regular basis, I, I think is a really important tool. And then combined with his scoring, I, I think it creates a really interesting prospect who I think could fit into a rotation in a bunch of different ways. So with his defense, you mentioned the footwork because of course you did, but the thing that stood out to me is he sometimes gets absolutely destroyed on screens, but his screen navigation overall, I think, is pretty good, especially since the effort is always there. And, you know, that, as we talk about time and time again, is a huge part of the defensive package, just, you know, putting in the work every play. But I think the strength thing that you mentioned as a potential concern with his jump shot sort of comes through more on the defensive end, where the effort is always there. But the biggest weakness that I've seen from him is just he will occasionally just get absolutely knocked to the ground on screens and, the average screen setter in the NBA is bigger than the average screen setter in college, although depending on the team, they're a lot more likely to just try and slip rather than actually set a screen, which might honestly be good for Molinar's defensive projections. But on the offensive end, I mean, I think he's a true three-level scorer. I mean, he's exceptional at the rim. He's shooting 88% from the free throw line this year, which is another good indicator that maybe his sub- 33-point percentage from this year is more of a one-year outlier rather than a real indicator of his shooting. But he also has a really good handle, and he's able to sort of get where he needs to be on the floor. And in terms of his passing slash playmaking for others, because I know you in particular love to separate those as two different skills, I think that he regularly makes the right reads as a passer. Yeah. He's not someone who... You know, especially this year, his assist to turnover ratio looks much better than it did during his sophomore campaign. But what jumps out to me with Molinar is he really is sort of a caretaker of the ball kind of point guard at this point. But 
every once in a while, he makes a more difficult read in traffic or off the dribble bounce pass that makes you think maybe there's something more there. And especially given how much better his assist to turnover ratio has looked this year in comparison to last year, maybe there is more potential growth for him with the ball in his hands as not only someone who can create his own offense at a really high level, but also create openings for others. Yeah, I I absolutely adore his decision making. Um, he just he, he just makes the read that's there. He takes what the defense gives him and doesn't try to you know do more than needs to be done. Um, and then I, I think so much of that uh, stems from he just looks so comfortable um, once he gets into the paint this year compared to what he looked like last year. A lot of that is his pretty absurd scoring efficiency once he gets in there and he's in the 93rd percentile in shots around the basket 96th percentile on runners which are really important skills for below the rim finishers obviously we mentioned that with kennedy chandler right where we were worried that he needs to either be able to get to the free throw line and make those shots or have a mid-range sort of runner floater game and molinar has both of those things and he has them in spades Exactly. And it's it's such an important tool. And sometimes it takes a couple of years for a point guard to really develop that. And for Molinar, that's how or that, that that's what it looks like is happening, where he's just the, the game is slowing down mentally for him. He's really comfortable making decisions once he gets in once he beats that first level of the defense and figuring out either how to finish around or over um, the rim protector or making those kickout passes to open shooters. And it, it's just consistently making the right reads. I, I would be stunned if he doesn't have a multi-year career in a rotation. And I just, I, I, I think his best role would probably be as like a backup point guard or alongside a, another primary initiator, maybe, um, or jumbo initiator, I guess, is is the proper term. Where, where do you see his kind of I- ideal role playing out as? That's an interesting question. I think that the easiest role to envision him is backup point guard, as you mentioned. I think that his three-level scoring, his really good decision-making just makes him someone that I think has a pretty clear floor as a third point guard. And I think his easiest role to project would be backup point guard, but you mentioned playing him alongside a jumbo initiator. And that's where I think that his real ceiling can be in the sense that depending on the situation, I think he could work his way into being a starting caliber point guard. If he has someone else alongside him, I don't think that he's really ever going to be, sort of the primary guy in charge of an offense. And granted, that's, you know, I'm saying that with the caveat that he's shown such growth this year over last year as a passer and playmaker that maybe he does have a higher ceiling than that. You know, maybe I'm not giving him enough credit, but I think that his easiest path into a starting lineup would be as sort of the secondary guy who guards point guards on one end and plays sort of, shooting guard slash combo guard on the other end next to a Cade Cunningham or a Luka Doncic or a Josh Giddy even. Yeah, I'm glad you brought you mentioned Luka there because that, that's exactly where I was going. Who I, where And the Mavs are picking at 21 and 51. It looks like I, I think 51 feels a, a little late for Molinar, but who knows. But I, I think that fit next to Luka would be pretty incredible, especially if they lose Brunson. So, and then... With the off-ball shooting, you know, he's 
off the, shooting off the catch um, unguarded is 81st percentile. If he's playing alongside a guy like Luca, he's going to get a ton of those opportunities. And the fact that he's more consistent and reliable and efficient in those opportunities than he's shown off the dribble, I, I, I think is even more encouraging for him sliding into a, a role kind of like that. Yeah, you mentioned the off the dribble shooting, and that's, I think, the biggest area for improvement for him if he's going to sort of continue to climb up. You know, if he's going to be more than a backup point guard slash like fourth or fifth starter type as a point guard slash shooting guard, it's really going to be in that regard of creating more shots for himself off the dribble rather than just the rest of his three level scoring game, you know, which is pretty impressive in the sense that he gets to the rim and is incredibly efficient once he gets there. As you mentioned, the other stat that I think is key to mention with him in terms of his potential off-ball fit is that he's one of the best cutters in the country too. When I wrote my Bolinar piece, and maybe the numbers have changed since then, so forgive me if they have, but he was in the 97th percentile as a cutter. Still the same. Okay, there we go. So glad, glad I'm not accidentally being wrong about that but yeah i mean the fact that he's in the 97th percentile as a cutter is really encouraging for his potential off-ball play especially if as i do you think that his three-point shooting number this year is more of a low-end aberration than sort of where he's at as a long-range shooter i mean if he can be that good as a cutter then if you have him off the ball alongside a luca or a kate or a josh giddy you know he has so many more ways to score because he's such a fantastic cutter and you know, cutting is kind of not really, but kind of my footwork. So, you know, if you want to, if you want to add that to the NBA deep dives drinking game, go ahead. But I think that adds such an important element to his game that makes him a lot more valuable when he doesn't have the ball in his hands. No, that, I, I think it is an important skill, whether you're on ball or off. I mean, obviously it's more important when you're off ball, um, but yeah, kind of hard to cut <laughs> with the ball in your hands. Unless but you're I, Steph Curry in that desk uh, <laughs> game. No, but like I, I feel like when when we talk about a lot of these guards, and I feel like we frequently mention, oh, if they play alongside a jumbo initiator, that'd be an ideal role for them. But so frequently we kind of only talk about the off-ball shooting in that aspect. But those jumbo initiators typically have more gravity, which means defenders are turning their heads a little more frequently, which means cutting lanes are a little more wide open and being more than just a standstill shooter and being able to you know relocate whether it's cutting or relocating on the perimeter is so important to play alongside those guys and something that very few young point guards have the skill of because it's something they've never had to do in their entire life because the ball has always been in their hands so i i think it's a really important skill to point out because be, him being able to do that at such an effective level um, may, may continues to show how versatile he can be used in a, in a rotation. So you mentioned you had him 32nd. Do you think there's any chance that he climbs into the first round for you? Or do you think of him more as like a early second round, 31, 32? Because those are picks that are used very differently to back end of the first round kind of picks. Yeah. Um I, I think it's kind of in that general range for me. I mean, like 26 to 35-ish are pretty fluid for me right now. Um, I mean, honestly, 20 through 60 in this draft. <laughs> mess, but Yeah, I know, and, and we'll see what guys like Musa Diabate or Taron Armstrong or Bryce McGowan's, whether their decision to stay in or go out 
you know what that looks like so if some of those guys start dropping out and returning to school for another year then it wouldn't surprise me if he jumps up um if he finishes the season on a really hot shooting stroke uh you know that that's a little more reflective of what his numbers were last year than what they've been this year um it wouldn't surprise me if that bumps him up a few spots for me and i'm not talking about like a two game sample size to finish the season where he goes four or five both games or something i'm talking like from now until end of tournament time where he's shooting 40 percent if if he continues to do that and the you know the the shot looks a little more consistent it, it wouldn't surprise me if if I, I ended up bumping him up a few spots because I, I i am really encouraged by a lot of what he does so mississippi state has lost a bunch of their recent games which yeah. is not due to molinar he's been the shining star in a sort of turd in the punch bowl kind of run for (laughs) Mississippi state lately, which makes his odds of playing in the NCAA tournament lower than they were like a month ago, honestly. But I mean, if he can have a hot run in the sec tournament, if Mississippi state, the rest of the team around him can sort of pick it up the final few games. I mean, he could have a chance at being the star of at least one of those two tournaments, but Really, that kind of does depend on the rest of his teammates playing a little bit better. And that's unfair to put it all on everybody besides Molinar. But he has really shown through in some tough recent losses for the Mississippi State team. Yeah, God, his, he's put up some pretty incredible numbers in his last 10. It looks like he mm-hmm. over over 20 points, six of his last 10, including a 28, a 30, a 26. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not a good team, but the 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 SEC is pretty loaded. Um, I mean, they they went to overtime with Kentucky, who's really good. Lost by nine to Tennessee, who's solid. Four to LSU recently. Arkansas by eight. The Tennessee game in particular, I watched that one live, and it was within two points until like the final minute, and then kind of went downhill from there. But they were in that game for thirty eight, thirty nine minutes. Yeah, so I. I it's clearly not because of him, but they they may just be right on the outside looking in, um, unless they get they get a a really strong finish to the season here. I I hope they do because I I think a, a strong tournament showing, even if it is just one game, of him scoring twenty five in the opening round, um, of like a twelve five matchup or what whatever the seeding is, I, I think would be really important for his draft stock. Unfortunately, it should be more than that. It shouldn't just rely on that, but. We all know how this goes, and so often it gets boiled down to that. Yeah, we all know how it goes. But, I mean, I think the other side of that, too, is there are a decent number of prospects in that range who are likely to play in the tournament, but not all of them are players who are the alpha and the omega of their offense like Molinari is for Mississippi State. So it's not just that he would really benefit from having a chance in the tournament. It's that he's going to have the ball in his hands Mm -hmm. all the time during those games, you know, unlike say, I don't know, a Kendall Brown or a Jeremy Sohan, they're not going to be taking as many, they're not going to have as many opportunities because they're just not that kind of player in the same way that Molinar is. So he might be one of the players who really boosts his stock the most in tournament season, but he has to get there first. And that does require a little bit more from the rest of the team around him. Yeah, and it'll it'll be tough. the The SEC is loaded this year, so I mean, even trying to make a deep conference tournament run uh, is, is not going to be super easy for them. But I mean, it just going through his game log, his 
production is absurdly consistent on a nightly basis. And it's been that way for the vast majority of the season. So the, the, the way he operates, the way he scores, the way he moves the ball, I, I think is, has been really, really impressive this season. All right. Anything else you want to talk about here before you wrap things up? I don't believe so. Uh, these guys are two of my favorite um, kind of in the back half of the first round to early second. Uh, there, if you if you haven't watched him for if you haven't watched Mark Williams, that's weird because Duke is always on. But make sure to go watch uh, Iverson Molinar um, and subscribe to everything No Ceilings. All right, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at t m e t c a l f one one, and you can find his work on No Ceilings as well as hashtag Basketball and Canisupus. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And you can find my work as well on No Ceilings. Be sure to check out each of our two most recent pieces, which we talked about today. Tyler's Friday screener on Mark Williams' pick and roll defense and my sleeper deep dive on Iverson Molinar. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.